When I was a teenager and I was first learning guitar, it was all about stuff like this. And this. And maybe this. I liked Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, all this rock and roll stuff. But I read this little introduction in a book of Eric Clapton's music, and it said how Heath said that the most important musician who ever lived was Robert Johnson. And so my friend John went out and got the Robert Johnson boxed set. And if you've heard of a boxed set, you're an old geezer like us. So anyway, you got this box set, and this is what Robert Johnson sounded like. I gotta admit that we didn't get it. Whenever we heard about Robert Johnson or heard him mentioned, we would just sing, Hot tomatoes and a red hot, yeah, I got it myself. That sound was not for us. Many years later, I was in my favorite used bookstore talking to the owner, Clyde. We were chatting about blues music, and he was telling me how great Robert Johnson is, and I related how, you know, I never really could get into him. It was all... And... Clyde told me, no, 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 there's this theory that all of his recordings were sped up. He actually didn't sound like that. He sounded like this. So I looked into it, I googled around as one does, and if you search for speed adjusted in Google, just those words speed adjusted, the very first thing that comes up is Robert Johnson music. And if you go on YouTube and you look up Robert Johnson Hot Tamales, the first link is the song, the second two links are Eric Clapton covers of the song. And then the fourth link is Hot Tamales. The song's actually called They're Red Hot. Speed Adjusted. And that's where I got the track you just heard. And you can find articles on The Guardian and NPR. If you read down the comments, there's just people for years commenting on this. Thank you for finally showing us how Robert Johnson really sounded. And... This is the real Robert Johnson. Stuff like that. How can we know for sure? What did Robert Johnson really sound like? Did he sound like this? Or like this? Which one do you think's the real Robert Johnson? They were going to be performing at, I think it's called Fold Hall in Newark, New Jersey in 1949. And a student at a nearby college named Paul Braverman had 
what was called a wire recorder. And these were sort of the first portable recording devices, but they actually recorded on steel wire like you used to see. I mean, it wasn't the same, but it looked just like the kind of wire you would have seen in a hardware store. And they were about the size of a small suitcase, reasonably portable, although they are quite heavy. And so Paul Braverman brought this over to this concert. That's Kevin Short. He's a mathematician and an audio expert. He's worked in various startups, which involved compressing audio, analyzing audio, finding the signal and the noise. We talked about a project he worked on, restoring a recording of a Woody Guthrie concert. The concert covered so much about Americana, folk music, family stories that it was sort of a gem. But he just stuck it in a shoebox, stuck it on the shelf of his closet. I guess he was retiring to go to Florida and decided to send it to the Woody Guthrie uh, Society in New York, where they realized what they had, and thus began this attempt to restore the As you can hear, the cell phone reception was not too good at one point in our conversation. I hope audio experts will be able to restore that someday. But I'll just tell you that the person who recorded the concert sent it into the Woody Guthrie Society. They realized what they had. But it was a massive project to restore this thing. No one had a way to play wire recordings, so a guy named Art Schifrin had modified a tape player to do that. You still needed a person to manually tension the wire by hand, and still the wire just kept breaking and getting snarled in the machine. You had to delicately take it out, delicately unfurl it, because you didn't want to lose any of this precious recording. The wire was stretched all over the place. The magnetism had decayed because the thing was 60 years old. It was in rough shape. The recording in many places sort of sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, or um, for people who haven't heard the Charlie Brown stories, maybe like a, a an old uh, cassette tape where part of it got stretched. And you just, everything sounds really distorted. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> in fact, they probably use that in other cartoon uh, cartoons now too. And um, but the cool thing was that I, originally I would listen to some of it and think I understood what Woody Guthrie was saying. And it turned out that when we restored it, I I realized that I completely missed the point of his stories. So the restoration actually uh, put the content back in and made it closer to the original live event, which was pretty cool. Okay, so. The speed was all messed up. That's right. And you had to use some version of your chaotic math to figure out what the exact correct speed was? It was actually, um, it turned out that it was uh, techniques that I had developed for um, detecting what was going on with the chaos, not necessarily the chaos itself. But it turned out that the only signal we could use that would give us an indicator of how fast or slow the tape was going, was that there was a hum on the line, and that hum came from the electrical power grid. And we knew that the electrical power should have been a pretty stable 60 hertz. But using some of the, I call them super resolution techniques, so we could get very accurate measurements of frequency, we could see that what was recorded appeared to be know, at 58 hertz or 62 hertz or something like that for short periods. And so we attributed that to the slowing down and speeding up of the tape. 
And then we were able to use that sort of indicator. And then I had developed some mathematical techniques to essentially restore the music so that it would be sampled at the correct rate. And lo and behold, at the end of the day, it sounded a heck of a lot better and you could really understand what they were saying. So there was a sort of a, a landmark on the recording, like you could see, oh, it should be, this should be sounding like 60 hertz, but it's not. So if we move the thing to 60 hertz, it'll be okay. That's right. And the funny thing is, uh, a lot of people attribute these kinds of 60 hertz signals or stuff like that as just extraneous noise, and you want to take it out. Yeah. But in this case, the fact that the the 60 hertz was, or the variation around 60 hertz was indicative that the recording was speeding up or slowing down, induced what's called wow and flutter in the recording, so that the person who would normally talk like this suddenly starts talking <laughs> like that or like this and stuff like that. So um, it uh, really affects all the frequencies, and so everything had to be corrected. So this is a 60 hertz hum. You used to hear this more in the old days when you plug things in. Sometimes you hear it on amplifiers. You hear it in the background on recordings if you plug a tape recorder into a wall outlet. And the speed of the Woody Guthrie recording was all messed up. And slowing down, speeding up everywhere. But the tape had this hum on it. And the hum was fluctuating too. You might not hear this so well if you're in your car, especially if you're on the highway, but I'm about to vary the frequency a little bit. kind of subtle because I'm only varying it 2 hertz one way or the other. But if they fixed the recording so the hum was steady, then that would steady everything else along with it, and the recording would sound right. I studied mathematics with Kevin Short, and I asked him about something he told us in class one time involving another kind of hum. Could you tell me about the hummingbird? Oh, <laughs> so one of the uh, one of the interesting things is that I had never seen a hummingbird live until I moved to New Hampshire, and only discovered the hummingbird because I heard it. And I was in my house, and it was warm, so the windows were open, and I heard the sound of the wings flapping, and I was seeking out the source of the sound. So I walked through the house, and um, once I got near a certain window, we had a nice flowering um, shrub outside, and there was a hummingbird um, buzzing and hovering right outside the window. And of course, uh, being musically inclined, I could go to a piano and figure out what note was pretty close to the hummingbird wing beats. And uh, from there, you could figure out approximately how fast they were flapping their wings. So here's what Kevin Short did. I wish I'd thought of this. He hears the hummingbird. Wait for it. He hears the hummingbird by the window. 
It sounds kind of like a lawnmower, a little tiny lawnmower. Here he is. And then he tries to match that sound on a piano because we know how many hertz each note on the piano makes. Hertz is just a measure of vibrations per second. So if we can match the sound of the hummingbird to the sound of a piano note, then we know how fast the hummingbird's wings are flapping. The note I found is 65 hertz, and it's a pretty good match because hummingbird wings flap from 40 to 100 times per second. So 65 was a decent estimate. And so I already know the answer to this question, but did you receive any recognition for working on this project? <laughs> Yeah, we actually won a we actually won a Grammy Award for Best Historical Album uh, at the 50th Annual Grammy Awards in 2008, and um, so it was pretty fun for a mathematician to get to go to the Grammys and uh, get called up on stage and uh, things like that. So it was it was quite fun. And did you meet any celebrities there? Uh, <laughs> I guess I ran into lots of them, but the funny thing about the music industry. Um, I knew a lot of the songs, but I didn't know what people looked like. <laughs> uh, it did. It did at the uh, at the later ceremony. I did actually uh, sit next to Angelique Kidjo, um, which was pretty funny because a few weeks after the Grammys, I had friends um, visiting who should have gone to the Grammys with me, but for some reason they decided not to go. Um, and I uh, opened his car door, and an Angelique Kidjo CD fell out of the side of his his uh, car. <laughs> And you said, hey, I know her. Yeah, I said, hey, I sat next to her. She was really mad when I tried to push past her crinoline skirt to get into the aisle. <laughs> Do you know if there are any other Grammy Award-winning mathematicians? You're going to have to just wonder about that. So there's a science to all this. There are ways to analyze old recordings which tell us exactly how they should sound, even if they've been stretched out and distorted and snarled up and pulled out of a recorder. If they're beyond recognition, audio experts can get it back. So we should be able to use these methods and find out exactly how Robert Johnson sounded. Like this. Or like this. But it turns out we don't need to. Because the whole Robert Johnson thing is just wishful thinking. And that's what I talked about with musician and writer Elijah Wald. The Johnson matter, it seems like we should be describing it as an illegitimate controversy. Maybe you even used that exact phrase in an email. Um, well, I would actually say it isn't even a controversy. I mean, nobody who has looked into the subject thinks that Robert Johnson's recordings are all speeded up. It, it's, uh, I, I mean, I would say it's not a controversy, it's a meme. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I mean, it, it's something that people share and go, oh, hey, that's neat. Not something that people have looked into and are arguing about whether it's true. People have looked into it, no, it isn't. I mean, the appeal of it is if you slow down Robert Johnson's recordings 
she sounds more like an old haunted black blues man from the deep dark dump. So if that's who you want him to be, if you slow down his recordings, he sounds more like that. And, you know, a lot of people, that is what they want him to be. And they slow down his recordings and they go, oh, my God, that's the real Robert Johnson. I never even I never heard that. Which is fine. I mean, that uh, in terms of their listening pleasure, they like him better slowed down. Fine. They can slow him down. It just doesn't say anything about Robert Johnson. It's about them. Okay. It's because they have an image in their mind. Well, also because some of them have heard Sun House, who taught Robert Johnson, and have heard Muddy Waters, both of whom had deeper voices than Robert Johnson. So when they slow down Robert Johnson, he sounds more like Sun House and Muddy Waters. And they go, oh, okay. And what they're leaving out or forgetting or never knew is that Sun House in 1936 was thought of as completely archaic and nobody wanted to hear him even in Mississippi except out at backcountry picnics. Whereas Robert Johnson was a hip young guy with a higher voice who sounded like the records coming in from Chicago. That's why people in Mississippi were excited by him. Not because he sounded like the old guy nobody was interested in anymore. For reference, here's a little Sun House. And here's Muddy Waters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything gonna be all right this morning. And here's Robert Johnson again. That is the, uh, I don't know how we're going to say this. <laughs> like, the authentic. Yeah. So <laughs> how, how he really sounded, I guess, is maybe what we would say. If you were just in a nutshell going to say why people shouldn't believe this meme, because I saw it on NPR and The Guardian and all these places, and then came to your site and said, oh, of course, this is not true. Well, how do you quickly convince someone? Well, I mean, the the first answer is it simply is, it simply makes no sense whatsoever. If what people were claiming was that one or two of the records were speeded up, one could compare them to the other records and make an argument. But what they're saying is that all the records are speeded up, despite the fact that they were recorded by two different teams, presumably on different equipment in different years, that some of them were released, some of them were never released. And if you want to get technical about it, that at the first session, a whole bunch of them, there are two takes, and one take is half a tone higher than the other take, either because they recorded at different speeds or because he recorded one take with a capo and one without. We don't know. 
but so we've got an awful lot of records that we can compare to each other. And the idea that all of them were speeded up when no other artist had that happen to them by a team who were recording dozens of other artists in the same sessions and not speeding up their records. It just it makes no sense. Okay. The people that are pushing this theory, they're just doing it for... They're doing it to make the records sound better to them that way. And that's fine. I mean, I, I really have no argument with those people. I mean, look, John Lennon always insisted, almost always insisted on having his voice slowed down because he didn't like the way it sounded. The idea that things sound better when you slow them down is completely legitimate. It's just that's about whether they sound better, not whether about that's really how that person sounds. I mean, lots, you know, people were listening to Robert Johnson's record for 50 years after they recorded who had known Robert Johnson. And none of those people ever said the record didn't sound like him. It makes sense. So the fact that people who never met Robert Johnson slow down those records and say, oh, now they finally sound like him. Oh, you know, that, that's about their fantasies. And that's perfectly legitimate. But it's about them. It's not about him. If you like a piece of music, it kind of doesn't occur to you that, I mean, sorry, if you don't, it doesn't really occur to you that you can modify it in any way. Why not just say, I am exercising my option to listen to it at some other speed? You know, I think there's also something else that's worth saying, which is you, you caught yourself before you used the word authentic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is in a way tied up with the whole authenticity thing, that, that people are not comfortable just saying, I like it better this way. They feel like they have to say, the way I like it better is the true way. And I think, honestly, that's one of the big problems of all the authenticity debates, that people confuse authentic with being better. And authentic isn't better. Authentic is just authentic. I mean, something can be real and lousy, <laughs> and something else can be a copy and be really good. There's no, you know saying that's a real Delta Blues is one of the things that has led to some unbelievably bad music getting recorded. You know, by people who were genuine old African-American guys who had spent time in prison, but they just weren't very good guitar players. And you know, the, the, the good ones are some of the best who've ever lived, but, but it gets into this world where they start looking for people who fit their fantasy of who a blues player should be rather than people who necessarily play well. And the authenticity, I'm not saying there's no value to authenticity. If I want to ask someone, what was it like being a guitar player in Clark, a black guitar player in Clarksdale, Mississippi in 1930. I need to be talking with someone who was authentically there. 
I mean, in that sense, it matters. But, you know, there were lousy musicians in Clarksdale in 1930, just like everywhere else. After I talked with Elijah, I was driving around thinking about our conversation, and it hit me, there's something oddly empowering about this idea. I can just prefer to listen to something at another speed. Maybe I want Adele... to sound more like John Legend. Or maybe I'm in junior high school and I like Mumford and Sons. But I wish they were a little more relatable. That's better. Or maybe Katy Perry is a little too bubblegum for me. And I would rather she sounded like a 90s hair metal band. If you think this is a little much, you should hear Nine Beat Stretch, a Scandinavian sound artist named Leif Inga, stretched out Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to make it 24 hours long. Here's a tiny excerpt of that. I don't know if we've even heard one complete note yet. In any case, thank you for listening. Thank you to Kevin Short. Thank you, Elijah Wald. You can find out more about Elijah Wald at ElijahWald.com. He has a book about Robert Johnson escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the invention of the blues, and many other things there. I wasn't aware until after I talked to him that Elijah Wald has also won a Grammy. So Robert Johnson and I might be the only people on this episode who haven't won a Grammy. The hummingbird sound came from freesound.org from a user who goes by the name Poolside. I will link to proper credits on the episode page for this show, which is called Hum As You Are. You can find that at nr2e.com. As always, thanks to my patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to make a small pledge to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash no reason to exist. And although this podcast strives to have no practical purpose or redeeming social value, I feel I must end with this story. And you can figure out how it goes with all of this. It comes from a book by Ellen Langer called counterclockwise and it's about an elderly woman who lives alone and every week she comes home with her groceries a bag of groceries and she sets the bag down next to the door 
unlocks the door, and then picks up the groceries again and heads up to her apartment. Now one week, she sets the bag down, unlocks the door, and finds that she can't pick the bag up again. You know, her back isn't as strong as it once was. So she rings on the neighbor's doorbell, and the neighbor helps her pick up the groceries, and she carries them up. So maybe this happens a few times, and then the woman's son is visiting, and the neighbor takes him aside and says, oh, you know, lets him know what happened. She's having trouble lifting the bag of groceries back up when she gets home. The son just thinks maybe it's time to make some calls. Maybe it's time to find some assisted living facility or somewhere for her to live. Oh, wait, there's another way you can run this story. So the neighbor takes the son aside, tells him what's been happening, and he installs a small shelf next to the front door. <laughs> 